Hey listeners, I just finished editing the first episode, and honestly it's pretty good, but uh, I have a couple notes at the top. We recorded these episodes over the last few months as a trial run, sort of figuring out if we were going to do this podcast or not, and we were still figuring a few things out. We didn't have the format of it totally nailed down, or the title, or our recording setups. I have a bit of a squeaky chair, and both of us took notes on paper and were shuffling it around a little bit in just this first episode. I tried to edit that out where I could, uh, but that should be better in future episodes. Also, at one point, I said Fourth Amendment when I meant Fourth Dimension. Mm, Oof. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it, and without further ado, here's episode one. Welcome to the TARDIS Tapes. We haven't come up with a name for this thing that we're doing. Um, the only two things that came to mind to me as I was thinking about this, as I don't think either of them are good, uh, one was Doctor Whom, which is nothing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and the other one was Who Let the Doctor Out, or maybe Who Let the Doc Out? I kind of like Who Let the Doc Out. Which is, I, I mean, I do think it's also nothing. I mean, it's a reference to, like, a bad 2000s single that people only reference because of how dumb it is. And it also is saying Doc, even though this is, like, nobody in this show is saying Doc, right? Like, that's not anything anybody is calling the Doctor. Sure. So, I mean, did you have any any anything you wanted to pitch for the, the name of the podcast? I'm, I'm so committed to who let the Doc out at this point that anything I could come <laughs> up with is just not going to be sufficient. Uh-huh. Well, then what I was thinking is if anything does come to mind as something that we can name the podcast, just shout it out during the episode. Okay. <laughs> so I did a little bit of homework uh, and some of that maybe I'll just mention as we get to it during the you know talking through the episodes. But uh, we, I think, both watched episodes one through four of the original Doctor Who, right? Uh, which is a series known as The Unearthly Child, uh, which is also the name of episode one. What is the name of this doctor, actually? I don't have that written down. William Hartnell. Um, William Hartnell. That, that's actually, you heard the click, and that was what I was just Googling. Oh, yeah, yeah. William Hartnell. Yeah, uh, which, boy, what a guy. Um, what? It, so, you and I have both seen, you know, some of the new series, so 9, 10, 11, and... Maybe you've seen some of the one after that. I've seen uh, Christopher Eccleston through Peter Capaldi. Mm-hmm. And I've only seen Eccleston through uh, uh, Matt Smith. Um, okay. What do you think of William Hartnell? What do you think of his doctor? I th- <laughs> this is this is interesting um, because I'm used to doctors that are a, a lot more charismatic. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I started I started taking notes on him as he appears as I was just watching back through. Um, I watched I was I was watching a second time and taking notes. Um, and as he appears, I was just taking notes on him. I, the first thing I wrote down was extremely antagonistic. Extremely antagonistic. Also, <laughs> uh, not especially helpful. Yeah, uh, my next note was evasive, confident, superior, and gaslighting. Yeah, that's about it. Which yeah. I I like that as a take. <laughs> I I like that he's uh, so I, I I like and dislike a few things. I I like that he's kind of antagonistic. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that the doctor necessarily has to be a likable character so much as he has to be just compelling. Yeah, but, 
my issue with him was that he really he see he seemed useless i i wrote this down like 18 times while watching the show uh <laughs> yeah he's this is a man who can travel through lot. time and space and uh he he had an extraordinary amount of difficulty making a fire <laughs> and not only yeah. that but he undercut uh the male teacher's name and i i should pull up a cast list so i can i can I don't know the actor, but that was it. that was uh, Ian. What is it, Ian Chesterton? Yeah, constantly. The character. Yeah, yeah, totally. So that, and they're clearly setting those two up as as being sort of. I mean, I, I guess we should we should uh, start from the beginning now, and we can we can get to these characters. Yeah, um, I, I took notes by episode, so sure. So um, the opening scene, I always think it's interesting to know if you're going to introduce something like this. How do you open uh, open the show? right i the cold open for this show is the theme song going on and on uh-huh and <laughs> and then on and and then it, on. yeah it's weird it's a it's a very minimalist theme song right um yeah on one hand it lacks much punch, happening but, yeah but it's kind of um, spooky in its own way yeah i i like the theme song a lot um, and it, the, the visuals over it, I mean, it says Doctor Who, and then the visuals are like the like extremely primitive Winamp visualizer kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? It's like, I mean, I, 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 I'm almost imagining how the special effects crew is like making these effects. And I think it's just something along the lines of like pointing a camera at water with a very bright light that is reflecting off the water so that you can see like it's, it's waving around and it's just black where it's not reflecting from or something like that. Like it, mm-hmm. it's some kind of weird dynamic like that but they're just they're just like very fuzzy winamp visualizer kind of things the opening scene though and i think it's not really a cold open because technically a cold open would be before the the theme song right no you're um, you're right yeah they just go straight to the the opening scene and it's just a policeman uh you know good old-fashioned goofy looking british policeman and with the hat uh it's just kind of fuzz- like walking back and forth not like fussing over it's not clear what he's just like looking at this wooden door and then thinks about going in and then doesn't and he walks away but then the camera goes in through the wooden door and you see a bunch of junk around and then inside you see a police box and then it cuts away and that's it mm-hmm. which is is kind of interesting because i this was something i had heard and i still don't know if this is true that when they originally made this show that they had planned to have the TARDIS change what it looks like every episode. And then that just wound up being too expensive. So at some point they just like stopped on whatever it had been last. And they said, all right, it's just a police box from now on. That, um, that but... has to be true because in episode two, we're skipping ahead just for a second. Yeah, sure. When, when they arrive in the past, one of the characters is like, wait, it's still a police box. <laughs> yeah. so they just they just uh you know what's that screenwriting term is it lampshading it Uh, yeah i'm talking about yeah yeah they're kind of they're kind of lampshading it just weird huh it's a police box i mean it's almost not a real lampshading though because there's nothing it would make sense for it to look like right like they're they're doing that to deal with the fact that it's not going to turn into a big rock or something but it doesn't even really make sense like they're not really explaining that either it's just uh you know we didn't we didn't want to have a big dumb sci-fi looking spaceship in every episode so instead it's going to be disguised as a police box and it's still going to be a police box no matter where they go 
Just, well, because the police box makes so much sense in the original setting, I would probably just consider it lampshading because, like, I, the viewer, would assume that it camouflages. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, they just they just nip that right in the buds. Like, don't worry about <laughs> that, buddy. It's just a yeah. police box. Um, I'm actually going to mention here because there is a document which is available. Uh, I mean, I think for a long time, you, maybe they wouldn't have let you see this, but... It is titled Doctor Who General Notes on Background and Approach. Um, oh. It was submitted by BBC staff writer C.E. Weber in May 1963. Uh, and there's a bunch of handwritten notes on it from the head of drama, uh, Sidney Newman at the time. Um, which this is like an original format document for like what they were trying to come up with for, the, for Doctor Who. And in the original document... They were specifically mentioning, like, we want something that's not going to take a lot in the way of special effects and sets and that kind of thing. So we're going to try and reuse sets a lot for this show as much as we can. Uh, and also, um, in the original spec script, they actually, or uh, like in this original document, he actually had the, the, time, the, the time machine just being invisible. He said, ah, oh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it can fit inside, like, a van, and it'll look like the van is empty, but actually it's got the, the time machine. And people can, like, walk up to it and feel it, and be like, oh, there's a time machine here, but I don't understand. Where is it? Uh, and that was the plan. Um, so That's they did at least choice. decide to give it one prop, which is an increase from the originally planned zero props. I like that, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's fun. I'll probably come back to referencing parts of that, that original document as we go. But the next scene, we are in Coal Hill School, uh, which I think is a, is a fascinating name that they went with. I and, didn't catch that, yeah. Yeah, uh, Coal Hill School, where you see a little bit of, like, teenage drama, some teenagers walking around being teens, you know how they do. Uh, and then you go to a room where you have two teachers that are talking with each other about a student who is uh, uh, a strange student. She's a genius. Her name's Susan Foreman. Um, but she's also just very weird. Um, and uh, her homework apparently has been suffering lately, although later on they say that maybe they, they, that was kind of an excuse and they made that up some. Um, but one of the teachers says she tried to go to her address and she went to the you know, school secretary and got her address, but there's no house there. There's, there's, there's not a house that she would live at at the address. So they decide that they're going to follow her home. These teachers, by the way, I had to uh, look up both of their names. Um, they do say Ian quite a bit. So I knew it was, it was Ian uh, and... Chesterton, I think. And it is Barbara Wright, Barbara Wright I believe. Yeah. yeah. So Ian and Barbara, they're they're very 60s television looking, right? I don't, I don't know the names of the actors, but uh, it, it really looks like it is 60s television, you know? William Russell and Jacqueline Hill. So then the next scene, we actually meet Susan, right? Mm -hmm. um, she's listening to some, some good old 60s rock music. That's how we know it's the 60s. Some electric guitar playing That's on some kind, of cool. little, yeah. some kind of little cassette tape player or something that she's got with her. And Ian actually is cooler than he looks. He looks like he's an older dude. Uh, but uh, he, he actually does know the name of the group that she's listening to um john smith and the common men and he knows that john smith is a stage name of some other guy uh but he's not that cool because he does want her to shut it off and he says he has a sensitive ear <laughs> so yeah not great is that a real band i, <laughs> I wondered that when know. i said that yeah uh let's see john smith and the common men i and uh only stuff that's coming up when i google john smith and the common men is doctor who stuff so they are they are definitely made up for this 
they uh they talk to susan for a little bit and they offer to drive her home and she's like no 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 i want to i want to walk home and i have a quote that i wrote down quote i like walking through the dark it's mysterious i wrote that down too i i the <laughs> next thing that i wrote down was susan is about to be killed this is an insane thing that she has said no, and no both person of these teachers are not really that upset about it either um, which is, I think, maybe especially significant for the fact that in this original format document, at least, they were originally conceiving of this show as kind of an educational show. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a very interesting way to think about Doctor Who, because that's you you don't you think of it as just like complete sort of entertainment, like kind of a like kind of a comic book story, right? Yeah. And you know, most of the time, comic books, you know, certainly people weren't thinking of them as educational. They were thinking it, of them as brain rot. But it brushes up on being educational in the same way that Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure does. <laughs> yeah, sure. And I don't mean that <laughs> insultingly or anything. It's just like, you know, yes, they met Socrates. Now we know who Socrates is. <laughs> yeah, totally. You almost can't help but teach a little bit of history if you're going right? to tell a story yeah. about a time machine. Um, but I don't know that they really hit the mark on making this an especially educational show, but I do think it's especially interesting. And maybe it says something about, I don't know, where, was it a simpler time? Was it safer then? Was London like really safe or something in the sixties that they're making an educational show for kids and they have the, the like maybe kind of self insert for the child audience girl being like, I like walking home in the dark. It's mysterious. Like, really? Yeah. Everybody's fine with this? okay whatever it's great um i you know there's a there's a a sort of obsession with mystery i think like one of the things with this show is i'm i'm learning about the british consciousness in a very indirect way right Mm -hmm. especially the 1960s british consciousness and maybe there's some there's some hold through to today but um like the uh so, I mean, behind the scenes a little bit. I, I subscribed to a channel called BritBox on Amazon Prime, so I would be able to watch this, right? Right. Uh, BritBox says it is all the best of British television, and it's a bunch of old BBC stuff that they made over the years. Um, scrolling through everything on BritBox, basically every single thing is some kind of, like, crime drama, like, crime scene invest, Like, not even really crime scene investigation like CSI. It's all just, like, this... Th- so-and-so is a detective, and there's been a recent string of grisly murders. And you move on to the next one, and it's just another detective and another string of grisly murders. And then, you know, I, I'm, I'm at some point, I'm like, come on, give me any other kind of TV show on this thing. Um, and I get to, like, oh, this one's about a, a priest or, or uh, in, the, in the Middle Ages. Okay, cool. Read a little bit further. Fuck, he investigates crimes. All right. <laughs> It's um, it's just the cultural heritage of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah, that's the thing. Is then I'm like, oh well, well, here's an old old reproduction of Sherlock Holmes. That's wait, fuck, that's crime investigation too. <laughs> yeah, uh, I did eventually find some old Shakespeare, but boy, uh, it's uh, it's pretty. It's a the, the British are just obsessed with murder. You know what? What's the murder most in mystery? What's the most crime scene investigation? Shakespeare play. <laughs> I don't know Shakespeare well enough to answer this. Um, I mean, I guess it, all through Hamlet, he's trying to figure out if his uncle killed his dad or whatever, right? Yeah, and I guess in Macbeth, it's kind of inverted in that 
we know who killed who. It's kind of just trying not to get caught. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, on a bunch of these shows were that kind of thing, too. It was all, you know, so-and-so is a criminal. Is So-and-so is a detective investigating crimes. Like, man, you guys are just obsessed. Um, anyway, uh, we get some chatting between the teachers uh, while they're they're wanting to investigate Susan. And they cite a few of the ways Can that Susan... Can we back Susan... up real quick? Yeah, yeah, go for it. When, uh, just after she says, I like walking through the dark, it's mysterious. Uh, mm -hmm. Su Susan is re... It's said in the dialogue between the teachers that Susan is is learning about the French Revolution. Specifically, uh, Ian says she's reading a book on the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. It cuts to her reading a book that a book that clearly has <laughs> just a paper cover taped to the front of it. Yeah, with the, and the the title is the French Revolution. With yeah, no author yeah. or anything. You know, I, lo I love, I love that. <laughs> uh -huh. I I I knew coming in how delicious all the props were going to be in this, and that <laughs> yeah. that is just your first uh -huh. just sprinkling of it. Um, it was great. A couple of I didn't want to pass that, that up. She is borrowing that book from Barbara, uh, and she has like I think gotten it today. And she says, "I'll bring it back to you tomorrow." And Barbara says, "No, no, you can keep it till you finish it." And she says, "Yeah, I'm gonna finish it and give it back to you tomorrow." So she's gonna read this entire thick book on the French Revolution overnight. Mm -hmm. um, and the other note, in, when she is reading the book in a, briefly on screen, then she's like in the middle of it, and she just says, "That's not right," as she's reading it. Um, <laughs> uh so anyway now we move on to the teachers uh i think i don't remember if this is in the car while they're waiting waiting for to follow susan or if this is is like after susan is left but um they're talking about some of the strange things about susan uh that made them want to investigate her here uh and one of them is that she is an absolute genius in a lot of ways but she doesn't know how many shillings are in a pound um, they right. cut to a scene where she says that she thought that they were on the decimal system. And, the, and you know, Barbara says, no, that's ridiculous. The U.S. is on a decimal system. We're not. She says, oh, it hasn't happened yet. Okay. Kind of kind of giving the game away here, but let's move on. This <laughs> one is just absurd. Um, so uh, uh, Ian was doing an experiment in class where he was showing them litmus paper and that it would change color when you put it in the solution with the acid or whatever, and it would go from red to blue. She got so And upset. she was bored by this because, and the quote is something along the lines of, there are two inactive chemicals, and that's boring. Couldn't we get active chemicals so that red could go to blue all by itself and we could move on to something else? That's nothing. I mean, I'm a chemist. That's nothing. <laughs> I, that seemed like nothing to me, but I didn't quite know, so I just kind of hand-waved. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and the last one is even more absurd. Um, he tries to give them a math problem using A, B, and C for three dimensions, and she says you can't do the math problem without having D and E for the other two dimensions. And he says, well, I guess D, you know, the fourth dimension is probably time. What's the, what do you need E for? And she says, space. The what? space is the first three dimensions. Yeah! What are you talking about? We can talk about more dimensions after the first three. That's fine. Whatever. Physicists are talking about 17 dimensions or whatever. But five, with the fifth one being space, makes no sense at all. Amazing. Yeah. Um, so, uh, 
they do see her go into that junkyard where the where the um I want to back up like, oh, before, sure. yeah, before yeah. we talk uh, about them going into the junkyard. I just want to discuss the logic of going to the junkyard. Uh-huh. Because the two teachers are discussing the fact that they don't think that the address that they've given her, given them, that she's given them yeah. is is real, right? Yeah. So, so they, they don't say, why don't we... After school. Right. <laughs> they go and wait at the address that they're sure, they're sure is fake. For her to show up. And magically she does, which is <laughs> makes no sense at all. It's incredible. I I I couldn't let us pass without pointing that out. I was yeah. I was I had to rewind it. I was wondering, did I did I misunderstand the situation? No. <laughs> well, They're I going to we're... a place they don't think she could possibly be and and running into her. I, it's too early to say. I think this is gonna be a continuing theme. Just how unsavvy the British are. Right, <laughs> uh, including the doctor and Susan, who are not British but are still British. Let's be honest. Um, they all are just like, oh, well, uh, surely the secretary just got it wrong about what her address is. Okay, well, let's go to that address, and surely she'll show up because that's what her address is, because that's what's on file. Meanwhile, Susan even says, I sh I need to give an address for this school. I live in a phone box in a junkyard, and we don't want anybody to investigate that, which is why when anybody asks me about where I live, I make some excuse. But I'm still going to put the address of the junkyard that the phone box is in as my actual address, because that's where I live. What else would you do? <laughs> what are we doing here, guys? The honesty is very helpful. Yeah, no, I mean, Susan is, I mean, they're right. Susan is very smart and also kind of an idiot. Um, so that part makes sense. Um, it makes less sense on the part of the teachers, but here we are. We also get some pretty, expl I, it's, they don't say this, they don't say these words, but we basically get Barbara saying, I've got a bad feeling about this before they go into the junkyard. Very Obi-Wan moment. Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, I would probably have a bad feeling if I was wandering into a dark junkyard. So they, they go in, um, and they start looking around at all the stuff in here. Um, Ian has brought a flashlight. They call it a torch because they're British. Uh, and I think what happens, and I was very confused by this scene, um, he reaches in to pull out the flashlight, but he drops it before he turns it on, mm -hmm. right? I think that's what happens, because otherwise, and I, Carlisle watched this with me, and says, why can't he find his flashlight? It's, it's bright, you should be able to see it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so not... Or maybe um, it turned off when he dropped it. I guess, but... They weren't... It, the bulb could have cracked. I'm not even clear on whether there was a flashlight prop in this scene. I kind of think he just reached into his jacket and then said, Ah, oh, my torch, I dropped it. Good possibility. There's a bunch of other junk in there. There's a mirror that we see at another point. Um, but they do find this police box, which they think is kind of remarkable. It is incredible how this police box is supposed to be the like disguise for this area. But it stands out so much in this junkyard. Like, it, it doesn't make sense as a disguise. It doesn't. Like, in a junkyard, you actually have a lot of options for things that you could disguise an object as so that it wouldn't stand out. And this is not one of them, even in this setting. <laughs> he walks all the way around it. They figure she's in there. I don't remember why they think she's in there. But then they actually, they go and hide because... 
uh the doctor actually comes out and this is when we first we first meet him he's this old the man most belligerent unhelpful <laughs> yeah condescending person uh-huh in the in the first like minute of his performance yeah well and and he's uh he's got a little bit of um sort of acrobatics at least in terms of the you know he's he's clearly trying to trying to keep a secret trying to get them to go away um susan is atrocious at keeping this secret she's saying things like oh we're not on the decimal system yet so she clearly has no idea about not letting on that she's from the future but the doctor's really trying to keep this one secret so he is trying to get them to go away they're asking questions like you know we'd like to look in there and he's he's consistently finding a deflection or a distraction anytime they ask a question that he can't actually answer and i mean he's actually doing pretty well right mm -hmm. and at some point they say all right well we're gonna have to go and find a policeman then and he says oh yeah go do it and they're like you're gonna come with us and he's like mm, no they keep on saying you're gonna run away and he's like no i want to see i want to see you guys make fools of yourselves trying to tell some policeman about how there's a police box in here and that's clearly a crime that's great and uh it's it, it the most works. suspicious way to like uh yeah. reverse psychology somebody into yeah no and he's he's constantly gaslighting right i mean he, yeah. right away they're like well you clearly have her locked up in there and he says you know come on listen does that make any sense? Does it seem at all reasonable that there'd be a person inside that police box? Get out of here. <laughs> um, it almost works, but then uh, but before they go away to get a policeman, Susan gives the game away and like opens the door and says, what are you doing out there? Uh, you know, she's really not good at this. She just doesn't know what's going on. So then they, they push their way in. Well, not, again, yeah, let's pause. Yeah. Because Ian puts his hand on... At, at some point during this exchange, and I don't remember at which part, Ian yeah. puts his hand on the police box mm -hmm. and says something to the effect of, it's vibrating. My yeah. God, it's alive. Yeah, I wrote down faint vibration and then in quotes, it's alive, yeah. which is a very weird thing to say about an object that is vibrating. That is it. a huge leap in logic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it could just be any much... machine. I mean, he's going to be such a skeptic in the immediate future, right? He is going to he's going to have things right in front of him, and he's going to be saying that's impossible. That doesn't make sense. But he does put his hand on an inanimate object and feel it vibrate a little bit and say, "This is a living thing." Okay, Ian. All right. They push inside the TARDIS, and of course, this is the the shocking reveal that the TARDIS is bigger on the inside, which is right. you know that phrase is something I'm using from the you know the newer newer series, you know. Eccleston and and Tennant and all of them because they don't say bigger on the inside they just emphasize I walked all the way around the thing and it was just the size of a police box but look at all this in here and Ian keeps on wanting an explanation and the doctor is just so dismissive <laughs> it's like no 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 you're an idiot there's no way you're gonna you're an idiot you understand uh and he tries he goes to try and explain it but the explanation clearly is not sufficient to understand this phenomenon but he still tries to act like it should have been, and it's just because you're an idiot that you didn't understand it, um, which I think might yeah. just be more gaslighting. His explanation is, well, you would think it's impossible to have an enormous building inside one of your smaller rooms, right? He's like, well, yeah. But you have television, don't you? So if you displayed a, an enormous building on the television, you would have done what you thought was impossible, right? Yeah. 
Ah, you see, you still don't understand, right? That's because you're an idiot. <laughs> no use in trying. I tried to tell you. Just, you have to. You have to wonder to what degree that is him just gaslighting versus mm-hmm. the writers be doing the equivalent of active versus inactive chemicals. Yeah, like yeah, was I mean, that it, an it actual explanation that, to them? Right? <laughs> I mean that one. I, I like that, right? I like that explanation of a um, like, because let's be real, we live in the real world, and in the real world, it is not possible for a phone box to be bigger on the inside than on the outside, right? We should clarify, mm-hmm. uh, just for our many listeners. Mm-hmm. I'm completely on board with everything that's happened so far. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it sounds like I'm complaining. I'm complaining in the best kind of way. <laughs> uh yeah 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 um let's see i wrote down a quote that i now can't find where i wrote it down um there is a part where oh yeah here it is um susan keeps on trying to say no 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 it's a it's the tardis it's a time machine it can travel it can do all these things and the the theme here with uh barbara and ian is we don't believe it. This is impossible. And it's sort of this idea that, oh, well, they're not, they couldn't understand something that's right in front of their eyes because it's not within the realm of possibility that they've been exposed to their whole lives, right? Specifically, this is, with these characters. this is the pitch for the show. Yeah. Because the doctor looks right at the camera when he says, like, you don't understand what you're <laughs> looking at. Yeah. He does barrel the camera, doesn't he? <laughs> right at the viewer and he's like you don't get it yeah <laughs> um there's a uh, a story that paul mccartney likes to tell when they were first writing some you know him and john were writing some of the early beatles songs and he was they were in his uh i think his parents house and they were trying to write uh she loves you uh and they're singing you know she loves you yeah 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 uh and his dad says to him well, this it's a it's a nice enough song, but Paul, listen, couldn't it be she loves you? Yes, yes, yes. That's really that's really the more appropriate way to say it. And I just imagine an old stuffy British <laughs> person watching his TV on November twenty third, nineteen sixty three. By the way, we haven't mentioned yet the day after JFK was assassinated. So I that's saw I guess that. in people's heads as they're as they're watching this. Anyway, uh, old stuffy British person watching this TV show and and just thinking. <laughs> It's not possible for something to be bigger on the inside. And, like, all of this dialogue is specifically written to address that person and make fun of him. I kind of like that reading of this, is that um, in this scene, Ian is the audience, and Ian is here to say, your premise is impossible and doesn't make sense. And then the doctor is being snide and uh, uh, superior to the audience as he says, you couldn't possibly understand. Um... And we and, do get the... Oh, sorry, go ahead. It's, it's William Hartnell's uh, antagonistic performance that really yeah. works in yeah. telling the audience that they're idiots. Yeah, no, he's he's got kind of a, uh, a little bit of a trickster vibe. He's not actually, like, playing pranks exactly, but he has this, this kind of a appearance, like, you know, he doesn't even care about any of this, and he's just laughing at all of us for how much we can't understand. Um... Now, he does deploy a word, which is part of why I say, uh, as much as they're from the future, whatever, whatever, the Doctor and Susan are clearly just British people from the 1960s, right? Because uh, Susan says, why won't they believe us? 
And uh, Barbara says, how can we? And the doctor goes to Susan and says, now, now, don't get exasperated. And I, I, this is a direct quote. Now, now, don't get exasperated, Susan. Remember the Red Indian. When he saw the first steam train, his savage mind thought it was an illusion too. Uh, which, that's, you just, that's a thing that would be said by a British person in the 1960s, right? That's not something that some future civilization, time lord, whatever, whatever, would say to Susan. Um, yeah. This is something that a British person from the 1960s Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, Ian replies, you're treating us like children. And the doctor replies, am I? Children of my civilization would be insulted. <laughs> um, so here's what I think they're kind of conceiving of the doctor as, right? Um, this is this is fairly late in the game. Like, this is, this is basically post-British Empire. There's still, I mean... Even today, there's still some British Empire stuff happening. But this is basically post-British Empire. But it's still, like, British people are still conceiving of themselves relative to the world as civilized and savages, right? Mm -hmm. You have this idea that there's all these savages out there and you have, you know, your, your stories like Robinson Crusoe and that kind of thing. Where you have the idea of, like, savages and the civilized. The civilized, you know... The savages can't even conceive of a lot of the things that civilization can do, right? You know, the, the Native Americans seeing a steam train and thinking, well, this must be some kind of illusion or something, right? I don't see the horses, um, so how is it moving? They're conceiving of the doctor as being to them what they are to savages, right? Right. So, like, it, it's this, um, like, kind of weird attempt at empathy with non-British people. That it, I mean, obviously it doesn't work very well because they're using words like savages to describe everybody, which means they don't understand them very well. Um, but the, uh, the efforts there, it's yeah. a bit indelicate. No, I mean, and obviously it's 1963, whatever. Yeah. Like, I I would be upset if a TV if if current Doctor Who was using the word savage to describe people uh, in 1963. This is this is more the kind of thing you'd expect. Maybe that's unfortunate, but. Uh, we do get uh, another quote from the doctor that I like um, because I, I I feel this one. He says, "I tolerate this century, this century, but I don't enjoy it." <laughs> Which it's pretty good. Uh, yeah, pretty good. Um, I actually I like to think sometimes about characters in terms of you know the um, there's that uh, Pokemon Puzzle League and uh, Tetris Attack and some of those other games that I've showed you those block puzzle games mm -hmm. where. When you get a combo or something, your character says a line, right? And there'll be, you know, a small combo, he says one line, and a big combo, he says another line, and then a really big combo sure. says another line, and it gets all echoey. Yeah. Um, I like to think sometimes about what the lines would be for certain characters, right? Uh, and I feel like one of those would be for the Doctor, I tolerate this century, but I don't enjoy it. Yeah, <laughs> like if you had one of those uh, pull string dolls... Yeah, or like exactly. an action figure Same that you kind press of a button on he says like catchphrases <laughs> yeah. i tolerate this century but i don't enjoy it it's pretty good yeah definitely susan meanwhile loves england and specifically the the 20th century um which i think is very strange she's supposed to i mean she's apparently traveled enough to know about the french revolution and a lot of other stuff i can't imagine any time traveler looking at the 20th century even what we knew about the 20th century by 1963 and saying i love the 20th century what <laughs> What are you talking about? Yeah. It's like the worst century. It's pretty bad. And like, I guess they're not traveling to the trenches in World War One, But like, how are you going to say, I love the 20th century? 
Nobody I guess the sixties were pretty. <laughs> the sixties were pretty good, except they were for that fine whole JFK thing the day before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you, you. They didn't address the fact that the doctor failed to warn anybody about that. But you know, <laughs> uh, we, we can't even get into that, can we? Yeah, no, we can't. The doctor is. This is not that kind of time travel. So there's actually this. There's a conflict now that happens where the doctor doesn't really want to let them go. The the teachers. Because they're going to go and tell everybody. And it's not really clear what that's going to do to him. But for some reason he doesn't want that to happen. And, you know, they're going to be the talk of the town, whatever. He's trying to keep this thing a secret. Which is probably responsible for time travelers to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so he uh, says that they're not allowed to leave. Um, but Susan wants to let them leave. And also then he says, okay, well we're going to have to leave this, this century then. Because now they're, they're all going to know we're here. And they're all going to come knocking on the door. And Susan says, no, I love the 20th century. I want to stay here. I'd rather stay here than stay with you in the TARDIS. Doctor says, okay, all right, fine. Then, And he kind of goes to open the door for them to leave, and she gets upset. And she's like, no, what are you doing? And she runs, and like somehow between the two of them, like fussing with the controls, they wind up accidentally t- traveling back in time. Not you think there'd be like a child happened. lock or something on it? Yeah, that's the thing. Well, and it's also like everything about these controls are very unclear. Um, earlier, Ian tries to be like, oh, see, he's got a lever there. He, I can open the door if I get... And he goes to like touch the, the controls and he just gets shocked and falls on the ground. Don't know what's <laughs> going on there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but at any rate, we've got our, you know, kind of flimsy narrative excuse for traveling back in time. Um, and speaking of the British conception of non-British people, uh, now we're going to go real deep into their conception of savages because, uh, this is where we get the cliffhanger for episode one. Um, and the cliffhanger is now they are in the TARDIS, still a police box, is in the middle of a field of sand, and there is a caveman looking at this police box and just kind of stunned by it. Um, so that's where we're at. (laughs) I was, I was on the hook. Uh-huh. At that point. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, like, so that... we're, yeah, we're yeah, done yeah. with episode one. Let's just summarize. Like, we've done the summary review. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. What, what do your guts say? Did you like it? Was it so, easy to watch? I think it's it was clearly easy to watch. To watch yeah. yeah. Um, it definitely, it, it has a lot of the feel of an old movie or something like that, right? The way that the characters talk and the way that the, the dialogue happens, it feels like an old movie. But I do think it's it's well put together. Like, the it's the writing is relatively well-crafted, right? And mm-hmm. the performances are good. Again, we've talked about how the props are pretty silly. But I think that the actors are good and the writing is good. And I think that that is, is pulling it through. I mean, I thought that the inactive chemicals stuff was a little a little silly. You could have come up with probably better things to convey that this person is uh, like a little bit off, but still uh, like very smart. Um, but that's okay. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think it works pretty well. Um, I do want to uh, pause before we go into episode two to talk about some of the uh, conceptions that they have about uh, these characters in this initial this initial document. Um, okay. Characters' original names, uh, Susan's original name was Bridget. They were going to call her Biddy. Uh, her description, a with-it girl of 15, reaching the end of her secondary with school it. career, eager for life, lower than middle class, avoid dialect, use neutral accent laced with latest teenage slang. So that's Biddy. 
We have Miss McGovern. That's uh, that ultimately becomes Barbara Wright, uh, mm-hmm. but it is at the time Miss McGovern. But they were going to call her Lola, uh, mistress of Biddy's school, timid but capable, of sudden rabbit courage, modest with plenty of normal desires. Although she tends to be the one who gets in trouble, she is not to be guide. She is also a loyalty character. There's a what lot of 1963 l- lingo happening here, and I have no idea what most of it means. What does it mean she is modest with plenty of normal desires? Oh, we know. Like, is is that how 1963 British people writing a, a document for work talk about sex? Or is that I, just... I think, no, I, th- I think that that's exactly what it is. It's, she's not slutting it up, but she clearly, like, wants a man. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, and they're pairing it with modest, so it's modest with plenty of normal desire. So she's uh, she's a, a, a proper lady, but she is interested in presumably our uh, our beautiful uh, male male character here, uh, whose original name was Cliff. Uh, here's the description on Cliff: twenty seven or twenty eight, master at the same school, might be classed as ancient by teenagers, except that he is physically perfect, strong, and courageous, a gorgeous dish. Oddly, when brains are required, dish. yeah, a gorgeous dish. Oddly, when brains are required, <laughs> he can even be brainy in a diffident kind sort of way. So he's just maxed out character sheet. Yeah, uh, these are the characters we know and sympathize with—the ordinary people to whom extraordinary things happen. The fourth basic character remains always something of a mystery and is seen by us rather through the eyes of the other three. Doctor Who, a frail old man lost in time and space. They give him this name because they don't know who he is. He seems not to remember where he has come from. He is suspicious and capable of sudden malignance. He seems to have some undefined enemy. He is searching for something as well as fleeing from something. He has a quote-unquote machine which enables them to travel through time, through space, and through matter. Uh, so those are the those are the initial four characters as they wrote them. Uh, which, you know, obviously, you wind up not far from that. They changed some of the names. Uh, I but... think that all came across. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, um, I will say that I think that it's true in this original description, and it's also true in the show. Barbara is probably the most useless character. I I don't even have opinions about Barbara. She did nothing. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, I don't know what a loyalty character is, but apparently she is a loyalty character. Uh, maybe that's a, a lit term. I, I don't know. I, I'm not familiar with the term, but if I had to guess, I would say that it has something to do with propping up the person we care more about as an, a protagonist. Yeah, that's probably you know, right. Because um, cause she makes Ian look good. Yeah, for sure. That's like the bottom line of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every episode, I don't know if you you specifically notice this, but every episode ends in a cliffhanger. And they do specifically note that in this format document, that every episode should end in a cliffhanger, and every episode should begin with a brief recap of what the cliffhanger from the previous episode was. I, I knew that coming in, that this was a serial, but my, you know... I knew it without knowing it, right? And my brain didn't wrap around that this was not going to have the same plot structure, you know, as, as I <laughs> yeah, was yeah. expecting. Uh-huh. I liked it. it. It made me want to watch episode by episode. Yeah, it works fine. I mean, honestly, yeah. I got to the end of these four episodes and I was like, ah, oh, I can't watch more until after... I mean, I guess I could. But can't watch more until after after uh, we record. I had the, um, I had the exact same thought. It's a good sign, right? Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Let's see. We should move on to episode two. So I I suggest, because we're at 45 minutes of recording right now on my count, Uh which would mean probably like 35 of actual content. I think that's good for one episode. Sure. So let's 
we, we don't need to do anything so much as I'm just articulating. We cut it here, maybe. Mm-hmm. Beginning of an, another episode of the podcast, episode two. Mm-hmm. Sound good? All right. Yeah, no, that's fine by me. Um, yeah, because I think if we do two in a row and that dips past like an hour and 15, an hour and 20 of talking for two episodes, that might be overkill. Yeah, then we're going to lose just, all, of just... our, all of our loyal listeners. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. Okay. Uh, hmm. Now I'm trying so to decide. So welcome to episode two of. Yeah, welcome to episode two of. Uh, we never did Dr. Pod. come up with another name, did we? Yeah, Dr. Pod. That's it. Um, let's see. Pod, 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 dis. Uh, last week, <laughs> Pardis. Pardis, I don't know. <laughs> time and relative dimensions in podcasts. Uh, last time we covered the first episode of the original series of Doctor Who, uh, The Unearthly Child, and met all the characters, uh, talked a little bit about the original format document that describes these characters, and... Talked about our original Doctor, uh, who is, I think we just kind of settled on, he's like kind of a dick, but we like him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, William Hartnell. Yeah, I, I, and this is, this is one of the things I, I like so much about the, um, the newer series, since that's the only one that I, I've really seen, mm-hmm. is that they, the changing the actor for the Doctor is an excuse to completely reinterpret the character. Yeah, it's no. it's not it's not like, for instance, you have different actors playing James Bond from, not movie to movie, but you know every few movies, right? Sure. And they're they're different because they're different actors, but they're never really a different character. It's yeah, always they're James all Bond. expected to fit a mold, whereas where there the is no is mold with Doctor, it's um, very refreshing. I will be curious as we're watching this show to learn when they actually kind of figure out that they're going to be doing that kind of thing, right? Because clearly yeah. in this original format document and in the show so far, they have no idea that they're going to be doing stuff like that with the Doctor. And, well, some of the, some of the ideas that they have about the Doctor in that original format document I'll maybe bring up later. Um, but they clearly are not thinking of him as an alien at this point, right? You don't think like, so? I mean, he's just an old man. I mean, it's actually strongly implied in that first episode that uh, Susan is from the same planet that he's from. Okay. So they, they both say that they're from a different time, a different world, and it really seems like they've been traveling together. She named the TARDIS. I don't know if you caught that, but that's a that's a Susan original. Right. I So I figured that this was just part of the lore that I... You know, watching was a series, the ninth Doctor and on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I know that by the ninth Doctor, he's the last Time Lord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I am just assuming that Susan is a Time Lord. <laughs> that's probably yeah. wrong. <laughs> uh, I was just I like, oh, there's two Time the Lords. Cool. Lore is on on what what Susan's deal is. I mean, because obviously, like current lore is not going to match this original format document. I mean, even their names already don't match this original format document. This is like early production of the show. But I do have, in this original format document, he talks about how uh, the Doctor is going to constantly have... He's constantly going to remain a mystery. And he even says, from time to time, the other three discover things about him which turn out to be false or inconclusive. I.e., any writer inventing an interesting explanation must undercut it within his own serial time so that others can have a go at the mystery. So he's explicitly writing into this, anybody that has ideas about who the Doctor is 
you need to kind of like circle that back to maybe not being true by the time you're finished so that the next guy that writes an episode can can have his own idea about it right yeah uh like like how every like every plot di d event in simpsons has to eventually reverse itself because at the end of the episode then they still have to be the same family living in the same place at the same job all that yeah yeah same kind of thing <laughs> It's it, it's fun for the audience. It might probably very frustrating to write for the uh, writers because you come up with this good idea and it's just it just is. What are the are they mandalas that they like the art that they make in the sand? Like it, it is by yeah. design. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he's got a he's got a paragraph here. While his mystery may never be solved or may perhaps be revealed slowly over a very long run of stories, writers will probably like to know the answer. Shall we say? And now it is underlined, The Secret of Doctor Who. In his own day, somewhere in our future, he decided to search for a time or for a society or for a physical condition which is ideal, and having found it, to stay there. He stole the machine and set forth on his quest. He is thus an extension of the scientist who has opted out, but he has opted farther than ours can do at the moment. And having opted out, he is disintegrating. One symptom of this is his hatred of scientists, inventors, and provers. He can get into a rare patty when faced with a caveman trying to invent a wheel. He malignantly tries to stop progress, the future, wherever he finds it, while searching for his ideal, the past. This seems to me to involve slap up-to-date moral problems in old ones, too. I don't know that that even really made it into this original run of episodes. No, because he, he mostly by, just seems self-serving. Yeah, even by episode two, I don't, they have, like, even the caveman thing, you know, we're, we are about to be talking about cave people, um, and they don't really lean into that at all this idea that he wants to stop cave people from progressing because he hates science and and the future and he wants to go to the past so that mm. seems like it largely got dropped which i think is for the best i don't actually think it's that interesting a motivation it's yeah yeah um i don't need my protagonists to be likable but i do need them to be like protagonists rather than just antagonist you know actually we, we call him antagonistic because he's antagonistic by attitude but his mm -hmm. actions aren't necessarily antagonistic so far. Yeah, I mean, he's, so he's far not I acting wouldn't say counter he's a clear to protagonist. Ian like, if anybody's a protagonist, it's yeah. Ian, and maybe sometimes Susan is sort of a like an audience self-insert. Um, but I, I don't, I don't think the doc. I mean, the Doctor absolutely they are keeping with the he should be a mystery at all times thing. Now, we talked a little bit at last episode about British people's relationship to. Um, the word savage, especially in 1963, and their conception of themselves as civilized relative to the rest of the world being, you know, uncivilized and savage. Um, right. And we're going to get a, a heaping helping of that kind of thing because this episode <laughs> deals with cave people. That's um, great. The title of this episode is The Cave of Skulls. Um, and we open the episode, not in the TARDIS, uh, we open the episode on uh, a little uh, caveman court drama. The uh, main caveman here is named Zaw, and he is trying to make a fire, but he doesn't know how. Uh, he's got Classic a stick dilemma. and another stick, and he's kind of like shaking both sticks up and down, but not even really rubbing them together. And at points, he gets really exasperated that the fire is not working, and he is leaping up on the table and shaking the sticks up and down together and roaring really loudly as though, you know, through a, a feat of might, he will, he will cause fire to appear. Mm -hmm. um there's a few other characters here there's an old woman who is talking with him about his father who apparently knew how to make fire but didn't tell him uh but she doesn't know either and there's also a a 
fem a younger female character here that they don't really give a name anytime soon. Um, her name is her. Her name is H her. Yeah. Like H-U-R-R, -R, I think, which is already lazy, but also they don't even say it, I think, for another couple episodes or something. I um, don't know that they ever say it, said it. This is just me reading the credits. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, they, I think they did, I, I think they did say it at least once okay. in episode four, because I remember thinking, like, oh, that's, that's her name, that's stupid. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we've got Za and her, and then an old lady that I don't know if the old lady's even named. Za wants to be the leader of the cave people, but he knows he's gonna need to be able to make fire in order to be leader of the cave people, and her is confiding in him that... You know, some of the old men in the tribe are thinking about making this other outsider, Cal, be leader of the cave people if he can't make fire. Because Cal has been going out and hunting and bringing them meat. While he's presumably just like all day, every day, been inside this cave with these sticks shaking them up and down and roaring. He's, I guess he's kind of in an R&D role for the for the tribe right now. Well, but well his really father was the fire maker, so he's, li he's living in this, you know, this legacy. And can you just imagine, just for your entire life, I mean, I, maybe his dad died young or something, but for your entire life, you're growing up and your dad is known as the fire maker. And you're like, hey, dad, how do you make fire? And he's like, hur, hur, hur. and then he dies. And now the tribe just doesn't have fire. Nobody can make it. Everybody's just cold all the time. Because also, I think it's the ice age or something. It's not very clear. I didn't see any ice. Didn't see any ice. Everybody's talking a lot about how cold it is and how it's gotten especially cold and how, like, it used to be there were more cave people, but then it got really cold and then a bunch of them died and the only way they could survive was with fire, but now they don't have fire anymore. Maybe it is the Ice Age. I mean, and they, they play these cave people off as idiots enough that you almost could read it as, oh, it's just winter. That was what I thought. <laughs> Which, I don't, like... Cave people would understand winter. <laughs> All of these I, people are clearly old enough to have been through several cycles of this. Could be an especially cold winter. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, but anyway, so that's Za and her, and Za is trying to make a fire, and we find out that there's this contest for who's going to be the leader, and Cal is the his main uh, con you know contestant. Um, but Zaw is the fail son of his father, the great fire maker. So now we go back to the TARDIS. Uh, and they're trying to figure out where they are. And the doctor says, oh, I can tell you in a moment. Hmm, my urometer. I love a urometer. That's great. I need a <laughs> urometer. Uh, my urometer reads zero. That can't be right. It must be broken. I don't think they're in the year zero because there's cave people. So they, I mean, who knows? Minus 6,000, minus 10,000. Sometime way BC, right? And uh, in spite of seeing a, a phone box that is bigger on the inside than the outside and seeing all of these crazy things and now seeing a camera that shows an outdoors that's like a like a desert or something, Ian still says, this is all an illusion. This can't be real. Susan, you must believe me that this is an illusion. I, um, will, re I will remind you that this is a man who not five minutes ago touched a slightly vibrating piece of metal and said yeah. this is alive yeah 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 no when he's when he's feeling safe then he can believe in all kinds of things but when right. he feels like he's under pressure and i think that there's even something more profound to this that like you know the sort of like classic victorian 
idea where like when you reject it when it becomes a problem in a in a position of authority whatever then you're very you know stiff upper lip and you're very sober-minded and all that but at night when it's secret or whatever then you're going out to shows where magicians are telling you that they're reaching into the fourth amendment to talk to dead people and you love that stuff right this is it's like you know it's a thing Mm -hmm. um so anyway at least in this context ian is very skeptical about the things that he has seen right in front of him um and he has some back and forth with the doctor about how this is all clearly fake and the doctor is a charlatan and the doctor says all right fine i'm gonna open the door and you can see for yourself we're not in that junkyard anymore uh and ian is absolutely stunned and he actually almost still doesn't believe it even after he walks outside Barbara, on the other hand, was much quicker to get on board. She's fine with this. This is, you know, whatever. She, she can roll with the punches. Oh, the other thing I was going to note. The doctor has a radiation sensor. And he I, yeah. uh, asks Susan what the radiation is outside. And she says, oh, it looks like it's safe. And he says, oh, I'll bring my Geiger counter anyway. So I he's not really using very fancy tech. <laughs> One, he's not using very fancy technology. And two, what's the point <laughs> of what, what would be the it, his readings say it's fine he never oh. uses the geiger counter again oh yeah what was that line for i think maybe the geiger counter was the thing that was broken in in uh in like the next scene or so there was some box on the ground that was broken and they were like oh this is no good anymore and maybe that was the geiger counter okay um uh, yeah. that, that could be okay this is the episode i have the least notes on yeah, for sure. Um, it's, uh, I mean, other than the caveman, like, court politics, there's not really as much that happens. Um, they go outside for a moment, and they're stunned that, uh, that they're, this is happening. And Barbara's like, ah, yeah, it's fine. And Ian's like, no, I'm still upset, and I don't want to believe it. Um, he does, he does, uh, say Doctor Who, <laughs> which is, I think, the second time they've name-checked that. I think it, they did say it once in the first episode. Yeah. I have a note here. Mm-hmm. that says William Hartnell at the time of this filming is in his early 50s that I that's stunning man he looks and acts a thousand yeah <laughs> he yeah. that he is a hard 50 uh-huh yeah. I just wanted to throw that out there <laughs> You're I, super I, rough on him I wondered how much lo- like longer he lived. <laughs> After uh-huh. this, I'm like, this guy is super old. Not super old. He's only 50. Yeah. No, I mean, you almost would have looked at, at just him and looked at how successful this show was, was like, fairly early and said, we're going to have to come up with some bullshit to put another actor in here, huh? Let's get the writers on it, because uh, this guy's not going to hold out as long as we want this thing to hold out. <laughs> you know, I'm looking at a picture of him... And I don't know how old he is in the photo, but he looks about the same age as in the show. And it, it might be the hair that's making mm. him look that old. Yeah. No, I think that's probably right. Um, you know, there there is just something about 60s, 70s, 80s. Like, all of these decades, like, people talk and you can understand them. But you look at their hair and you're like, this is another planet. I, I don't understand where you people came from. I, wa- I watched Terminator the other day with Carlisle and just the 80s hair in this movie. I'm like, this, this, is, un- this is inconceivable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because so now it's old people haircuts, but it's on <laughs> young people. Yeah. 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 Um, 
so let's see what actually happens after um oh that's well, right actually on that note is so like your early to mid 2000s kind of like emo over one eye haircut mm-hmm. that that's dated right uh surely right so so is there is that going to be the equivalent is like are there there aren't adults now who wear that haircut but I, I would love it if there were, because then there would be kids who are looking at adults, like, constantly yeah. flicking away the hair from their left eye. I do love the idea of that being a stereotypical old person haircut. <laughs> yeah. It does seem really good. We we can make it happen. There's still time, because, like, I mean, it is dated, but I feel like that was a thing that pe- relatively young people were doing when I was in, like, middle school. There's still time for us to make this happen. Okay. All the old people have, like, that emo haircut that covers one eye, and they're dyeing their hair blue and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and this I, is a beautiful I'll do dream. my part. I'm wearing a striped sweater right now. Mm-hmm. So. Um, we didn't, we didn't have a sign-off for the podcast yet, but I would submit, um, if you're over 50, start dyeing your hair blue, and wear it over one eye. Something like that. We can workshop it. Uh, uh anyway, I, uh, the doctor gets stone-cold knocked out. Uh, he is not very careful for a guy that has traveled all through space and time. He's not really very good at keeping his wits about him. It seems like this is his first time doing this. Yeah, right? He just, like, goes outside and he's like, Oh, I should probably, I don't know, check the radiation. No, hold on. Let me turn my back to these this forest here. And then I'm gonna just, like, pull out a pipe and light it. And there's, so like, I... a caveman standing right behind him for a good period of time. And he's just completely oblivious. I know that the answer to this is that there is no answer because this is the first... It's not the first episode, but it's the first story, right? Sure. But how long has he been doing this, actually? Because it is the first Doctor. (laughs) I know that this isn't something they even probably thought about. It it was almost certainly fleshed out over time, so we're asking a question that can't have an answer, but... Yeah, it yeah. How long was he doing yet. this? It might, it... it might at some point. Yeah. Um I don't know how long he's been doing this. He sure does seem like, and I mean, I, I guess the other thing I'll note, and this doesn't, this hasn't really come across that much yet, but uh, at least in the format document, they want him to have amnesia. They want him to not really remember things very well. So mm-hmm. it maybe makes a little bit more sense if that's how they're conceiving of the character that we're going to get a lot of this guy kind of saying oh what's going on whoa hold on just give me my pipe oh where where are we what's happening yeah there's there's some of that so he gets stone cold knocked out by this caveman this caveman sees him go to light a pipe and is absolutely stunned because as we learned earlier uh these cave cave people are obsessed with fire and they can't get it and they uh you can actually become president by being able to make fire this is this is how the the standards are at the time if you can make fire, you are the leader of the free world. Um, and so this cave person, who we later learn is Cal, who got referenced earlier, Cal yeah. is con- convinced that this old dude is his ticket to becoming the new leader of the tribe. The uh, the rest of the team, um, Ian and Barbara and Susan, have all been zoning out and looking at a skull, and they don't realize that the doctor has been, been kidnapped, and so they go and try and chase him once they figure that out. Now, we get more caveman court drama. So, they go straight to... When they... When they... Are in... When the... The rest of the crew, right? Not the doctor. Mm-hmm. Go... Go looking for him. Mm-hmm. 
somebody, and I think it was Ian, but that's just because Ian is the person who does everything. So like, I, yeah, as- yeah. I assign all actions to Ian, even if it wasn't him. Mm-hmm. Touches the sand and says like, oh, the sand is cold. Yep. Yep. That was Ian. Why? Uh, because they're trying to do this Ice Age thing and they didn't want to fit like any kind of actual set pieces to establish that it's an Ice Age thing. So they just had to do it with uh, with him touching the sand and saying it's cold. But that's it. It could just be cold outside. Like sand gets cold all the time. So <laughs> my thought when he said that was that there was a special reason other than that. It's if it's cold everywhere, then the sand yeah. is going to be cold. Sand isn't a hot material. <laughs> it's not always it's like, hot. This oh, this lava's is cold. That's weird. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it, Ian definitely does think that this is a big enough deal to remark on it, which does kind of give you the impression that Ian is maybe somebody that has lived, like, in Britain his entire life and has only ever heard of the concept of sand in the context of deserts. And so then they're in this desert, and somehow it's taken him this long to realize it's freezing outside. Touch the sand. This sand is really cold. What's happening? I, okay. I would love yeah. a separate character study, study of just, a, like, a lifetime englander who basically <laughs> just is experiencing sunshine for the first time yeah 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 um it it does seem to be that they are uh well like i said before just completely unsavvy um they have no idea how to survive in any society besides their own and honestly they're not, they're not that clear on that one um right but we have more caveman court politics to deal with we learned that they refer to the sun as orb proper noun orb um and they refer to like what orb wills and that kind of thing so they they seem to be sun worshipers we have Zaw back at the cave and some old man comes up and is like maybe we should make cow leader he brings us meat all you ever do is sit in here and rub sticks together Uh referring to the sun as orb is so much more obtuse than just calling it like the sun (laughs) yeah it's really weird orb seems like it's like maybe more of a more of a fancy geometric concept than well that's what i mean is like is to to call it orb implies that they have some concept of spheres of different sizes which they really wouldn't uh-huh you know uh-huh i don't know yeah i mean sometimes they kind I'm of betray understanding things a little bit better than they seem like they do because they're so stunned by fire and yet at one point when he's trying to make fire he says put some more of the dead fire on there and her puts some some tinder on there. So he, like, understands, that, like, this stuff burns, and this stuff is, yeah. like, dead fire. That is, good. you know, if I yeah. can just resuscitate it. The old man says, we're gonna have to, you know, maybe we should make Cal leader. Uh, which, I don't know why the fuck he's saying this to Zaw. I mean, especially in this crew, he's just likely to get murdered by Zaw in the immediate future for saying this. And there's no reason he needs to say it to Zaw, right? I mean, if you're if you want to make Cal leader, go talk to Cal, right? Or, like, talk to the rest of the tribe about making cow leader. Um, but Zaw says, uh, and I wrote down a quote here, I will have to spill some blood and make people bow to me. This is, <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's classic leadership blunders. Yeah, yeah. No, and it's, um, I mean, it's a really straightforward, again, everything about these guys, but it's a really straightforward depiction of what British people think that, like, this is, the world must have been like before there were British people. 
It's like, oh, you know, before they, we, they were civilized people like us, then they was just absolute savages that were just like, what? Everybody doesn't like me? I'll have to kill them until they like me. But Cal drags in this knocked out doctor. Uh, and you get a little bit of a, we get kind of a, a political debate here. Uh, we have the two candidates uh, here in front of everybody. And Cal is here on a platform that he fought this creature. He's really exaggerating the fight. He's like, oh, it was a big dramatic fight between me and him, like a tiger and a bear. But I won, and he went to sleep. And he has fire inside of him. I saw him make fire with his hands. So he has fire inside of him the way you and me breathe. And Zaz a good line. You know, it's like like you breathe out lies. Aha! This is, this is really getting into a political debate here. Um, and for a minute, Cal kind of seems like the crowd is going to be on his side with this, like, oh, see this old this weird old man that wears strange skins? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring fire with it. Zaw never brings fire. He's always just, you know, hold up rubbing sticks together. Um, but Zaw says, all right, have him do it. Have him make the fire. Uh, and then uh, the doctor wakes up. And for a moment, the doctor's like, oh, you guys want fire? I can give you fire. And then he pats his pockets and he says, fuck, I don't have any matches. So he <laughs> says, I cannot make fire. Zaw is thrilled with this, this outcome and jumps up on the table and starts really leaning into calling his opponent a liar and a flip-flopper. Zah earlier was making some campaign promises that tomorrow he was going to go out and kill a bunch of bears and give everybody warm skins. And people were saying they didn't believe him. They said, you're probably just going to hole up and rub, rub sticks together again all day. And he says, when I, when I say I'll do a thing, I'll do it. And uh, Cal is desperate at this point because the crowd really seems to be on Zah's side. Cal runs over and like is, grabs hold of the doctor and says, make fire, make fire. I saw you make fire with your hand. Make fire. And the doctor says, I cannot make fire. Just make fire or I'll kill you. Um, and they very nearly kill the Good doctor. Game, and this is when the other three show up. This is when the, the teachers and Susan show up. And for a moment, they try and defend the doctor. But then they all just get grabbed by cave people too. And they all are like on the verge of, of um, being killed. At one point, Zaw is about to murder Ian. And the doctor shouts out, if you kill him, you'll never get fire. And Zaw stops, which is weird, because Zaw is the one that doesn't believe that the Doctor has any special talent for making fire. But he still stops and doesn't kill Ian. Right. And then they think, well, maybe we can still kill Barbara. So then I think Cal's about to kill Barbara, and the old woman's like, yeah, kill her, kill her. But then Zaw says, no, 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 here's the plan. Orb needs to teach me to make fire. And so we're going to, to please Orb, we're going to wait until Orb is in the sky again. And then I'm going to kill them all. So take them to the Cave of Skulls. We'll lock them in the Cave of Skulls. And then I'm going to kill them when Orb shines. And that is is going to, you know, appease Orb to make him teach me how to make fire. So that seems to be a plan everybody can agree on. At one point, the old woman is like, no, you should have killed them. But the old woman, we learn, just hates fire, which is also very strange. She just really thinks that fire is a bad, a bad idea. And so uh. she says, you should have just killed those people. And he says, I'm not going to kill him until Orb comes back. I said that. That's what I said I was going to do. I really wanted there to be some kind of twist where the old woman is, is like also a time traveler. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. she, like she's this, this came out in what, 63 or something like that, right? 63. Uh-huh. uh-huh. She's seen the atomic bomb. <laughs> right yeah. and she's like this is where it all starts and i can stop it that did not happen uh-huh 
yeah no i do like that idea um they didn't they didn't go that route um but i i certainly can see the appeal of like meeting other time travelers and the other time travelers are ha have the motivation the doctor was originally supposed to have of hating the future and wanting to recover the past uh, mm -hmm. But no, she's just an old lady that hates fire. That's that's it. There's not I really think, like a lot more going on there. Yeah, I, I think that'd be like less of a time traveler and more like a time time hermit. <laughs> yeah, time recluse. Yeah. Um. So they get dragged to the to the um the the uh cave of skulls. I w I will also point out there's a scene where uh the where Zaw is talking to what appears to be her's dad. So there's an old dude that comes up and is talking with Zaw a little bit and Zaw is like you're going to make you're going to give your daughter to me. And we've already established that his daughter is going to go to whoever wins this election, right? His name whoever, is Horg, right? His name is is Horg, I guess. I don't know. He's old dude that's her's dad. Um yeah. Honestly, I was I was referring to her as wife and him as old man in all of my notes. Um, yeah, sure. But uh, Zoss thinks this is the time to to really like close the deal and establish that he's going to be the new leader uh, and that he's going to get to marry this girl. And Horg seems a little bit skeptical, but he does say, we do learn that Horg used to be a leader of many men, um, but that a lot of those men died when the Great Cold came. So I do think we're supposed to think that like, they have pretty recently entered an Ice Age, right? I wonder how much more work it would have been to put some snow right. on the set <laughs> Just outside. A single, a single piece of set that establishes that it's cold. Yeah, no. Instead um, of literally grabbing the dirt and saying it's cold, which is yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and it's like I was I was saying for the, this for the first episode, too, that they just have absolutely zero budget for props, and they have to establish everything with the writing and the actors, and the actors are good, and the writing is good, and the props are terrible, and... It's, like a, it's a fun exercise. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's cool, but it does leave you in situations where you're like, how are we going to establish that there's an Ice Age? Have him grab the dirt and say, this sand is freezing. Yeah, so, no. Uh, addendum to that, I, I will say, it, it's a it's a... It's a nice exercise, and I feel like it mostly succeeded. Sure. The the Ice Age thing, complete failure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Did yeah. not come no. across for me. Even, even um, as we're discussing it, I'm in disbelief that I'm in disbelief. Well, it also just it, it's like, the Ice Age. I, I just wrote down in quote, the great cold, and then when are we? Where are we? <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, and I I have no like especially for a show that it was originally billing itself as educational. There's actually notes in there where um in the in the original format document he's talking about maybe going and meeting like King Arthur or maybe the Doctor is you know married to this person or various like fantastical historical characters. And right. the note is that like we you know we want to lean more on like actual real history. Right, and now we're in like unspecified caveman times, and there's I guess an ice age that happened within recent memory. I don't know. In the cliffhanger for this episode, they are in the cave of skulls, and it's not much of a cliffhanger, um, but clearly they're they're trying to play up the drama of it. Uh, of like they're all tied up, and none of them can. They're all tied up pretty good. None of them can get free. And he says, you know, look at all of them. And the camera pans to these skulls that have some some chips out of their their. Uh, the top of their head or something like that and he says yeah they're all the same they've been bashed in 
oh no, skulls all over this cave, which I am a little unclear, like, how many fucking people have they murdered in this cave? What is happening in this cave? Yeah. If I was going to sacrifice somebody to the sun, and if there's any cops listening, this is this is purely hypothetical. This is not a thing I've actually done. But We can speculate. Yeah. If I was going to sacrifice somebody to the sun, I would maybe do it outside. outside? <laughs> <laughs> I... I this is i mean the cave of skulls i think this cave exists because the cave of skulls was an episode title that they liked as an episode title but like this is just a cave that they put a bunch of skulls in and why did they put them here like why didn't you kill these people outside where orb could at least see you and maybe be excited about it the cave of skulls is a it's a good title yeah it's fine i I think it's better than the forest of fear which is is uh the next episode um tune in next week everybody uh for the forest of fear which is i think of these first four episodes maybe the weakest i'm not sure i i actually i thought that the cave of skulls was the weakest all right well there you go then you know this is our little cliffhanger listeners uh make sure to tune in next week for an episode that is somewhat (laughs) better than the the caveman court politics that we just got well we can't we can't close without a a, like a, a review you know yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the rundown. Yeah, of course. Uh, overall, what happened? Overall, not really not a lot happened. They stepped outside the TARDIS. The doctor got knocked out. Doctor got, the rest of them got thwacked by a caveman, got dragged to a cave. The other ones didn't get thwacked by a caveman, but they still went to the same cave and got, you know, to go be prisoner with the doctor. And then the cave people argued with each other for a little bit and then said, all right, we're going to put all these guys in the Cave of Skulls and tie them up. Mm-hmm. And that's it. I mean, it's only 25 minutes. You know, there's only well, so much only... you can do in 25 minutes. There's a lot you can do in 25 minutes. And th- this was actually my complaint about it. Mm-hmm. We we watched the first four episodes of this, uh, you know, with the intention of doing this podcast. Mm-hmm. But really, this was the trial run. If, if we weren't in love with these four episodes, we can you know discuss another topic. And I, I mm-hmm. don't know if I'm overstepping here, but I like it. I, I, I'll continue to watch. Sure. Yeah, but, absolutely. But episode two. Uh-huh. Was the only time in the four episodes where I took a step back and and thought, yeah, maybe not. Yeah, be, because nothing happened. <laughs> maybe so we'll I, just I start thought, with <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I th- sure. I thought that we were going to get online and talk about this and and not have enough content to discuss. Uh-huh. You know, mm-hmm. and that's I that's mean... turned out not that's turned out not to be true, right? But but yeah, finishing well, that and... second episode, I went, I don't know if this is a good use of time, actually. And the thing is, the I think that what was supposed to be exciting... I bet that people loved this episode when it came out. And I think that the thing that was supposed to be exciting about this episode is this sort of, again, like, Victorian-style fascination with, like... Savages. Savages. And, like, savage people being savage. And just, like, seeing depicted on screen how horribly savage they'll be to each other. Of, like, shaking the stick up and st- up and down and roaring and threatening to kill each other constantly. And saying things like, I will have to spill some blood and make everybody bow to me. That's the kind of thing that people were here to see. And I am a little bit interested in the court politics, honestly. Like, I do kind of like when I, when I see Zaw and Cal on screen. And they're back and forth with each other. And Zaw is like... I brought back this dragon, and this dragon will make us fire. Yeah. This is just an old man. 
And then he grabs the old man's like, make fire. And the old man's like, I can't, what are you doing? And then Cal is, is you know, Zaw jumps up on the, the table and is like, he's a liar. I keep my promises. He doesn't keep his promises. <laughs> you know? Like, it... I, <laughs> I want to be leader of this free world. I really enjoyed all that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what they spent most of the episode on. Like, they introduced these four characters in episode one, and then we didn't even actually get that much of them in this episode. This isn't an episode about them. This is an episode about Zaw and Cal and several other characters that theoretically have names, but they basically don't get spoken on screen. So they're just, you know... Talking politics in a cave. Yeah, they're, they're wife and old woman and old man. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it is kind of fun, I think, but I think it also is, you know it's for children maybe but like i mean did you think about geico at any point during these during these episodes i didn't and it's probably the first time in years <laughs> yeah um i was i just was picturing that geico caveman getting really offended by all of these depictions thinking, oh yeah like, i wonder if this is even like the kind of thing they were thinking about when they made those commercials um and yeah that was that was kind of what i was thinking of like boy you know those cavemen got their own sitcom yeah, that's a thing I had heard, and I never actually learned anything else. I mean, the thing is, I remember hating those commercials in a way that I never actually cared. Like, I, I don't like the gecko, but I don't care about the gecko. But I remember hating the cavemen. I remember everybody hating those commercials. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know that I've ever met a person who, who looks back on that dark time in America where those commercials uh-huh. were on every commercial break and, and thinks fondly of it. Uh-huh. But now we're going back to the dark time, you know, 50-ish years ago, you know, 50-ish years before that, uh, where you had a similar depictions, but it was on British television. All right. I think well, I think my, my worries were baseless in retrospect, though. Yeah. I mean, there I was there was plenty to talk about, it, and I enjoyed it. So I do think that The Forest of Fear is a dumb uh, episode title. It just it's it's even more than The Cave of Skulls, like. Boy, you just had, like, you just wanted a thing that sounded like, like, you just needed a proper noun. There's nothing, like, it's just a forest. Like, the cave is just a cave. The forest is just a forest. The cave only has skulls in it because they put skulls in it. They're scared of the forest, but it's not clear why, because they're going out there all day, every day, looking for food. So, it seems like it's fine. I don't know. They're they're very much named in, in the style of cereals. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, no, I get it. To rewind a bit and go back to your comment, this is uh, for kids. Uh-huh. Was Star Trek for kids? Uh, I don't think it was. Uh, let me see if I can find the part of the, um, the format document where he actually talks about the, like he he specifically mentions like targeting like fourteen maybe. Okay. And like thinking of and and it, I think it's less specifically that like. Uh, this should appeal specifically to 14-year-olds, and more that um, you should think of 14-year-olds as being, like, one of the most critical um, ages, like, of, like, when people would complain about your thing, and think of what a 14-year-old would say about it. Because he really wants to say, we're not sci-fi, and we're also not fantasy, uh, which I think is a weird target, and I don't know that they hit that mark. Um, I think they missed that mark completely it is it's yeah. definitely sci-fi fantasy uh-huh yeah um and i don't even know which one i would say it's closer to although the distinction has always been a little bit goofy um let's see here it is 
Uh, evidently, Doctor Who's quote-unquote machine fulfills many of the functions of conventional science fiction gimmicks, but we are not writing science fiction. We shall provide scientific explanations too sometimes, but we shall not bend over backwards to do so if we decide to achieve credibility by other means. Neither are we writing fantasy. The events have got to be credible to the three ordinary characters who are, are our main characters, and they are sharp-witted enough to spot a phony. I think the writer's safeguard here will be, if he remembers that he is writing for an audience aged 14, the most difficult, critical, even sophisticated audience there is for TV. In brief, avoid the limitations of any label and use the best in any style or category as it suits us, so long as it works in our medium. Huh. Uh, uh, the, there's the handwritten note from the head of drama uh, right after that. It just wrote, not clear. So uh, not even clear. even from that original format document, when head of drama Sidney Newman looked at this and read all this, it's not sci-fi, but also it's not fantasy, but also there's a time machine, uh, he said, eh, that's that means nothing. What do you even He mean? was yeah. right. Yeah, he was absolutely right. I mean, in like two seconds, we're going to have Daleks and Cybermen. Like, this is sci-fi. It's fine. Oh, I'm so looking forward to that. It's not self-serious sci-fi, but it is sci-fi. And that's, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Did they do they have, like, the concept of camp back then? Uh, or is that something that only kind of developed in retrospect? Had. I don't well, know. But what I mean is, like... Camp. But that th that's the thing is, it, if it's only if everything is camp, then nothing is camp. Mm -hmm. So they wouldn't have had, like, oh, we're making something that's really campy. Mm -hmm. uh, I, original... I went, when did that come around? That concept of like, there's this serious. Oh, I don't know. Very... I mean, I think it would have had to be sometime after you actually had big budget productions that would do like do these kinds of stories and not have really silly special effects that were like kind of transparent right mm -hmm. like a lot of early movies you have phenomena like the the thing where everybody's always using pesos for currency and nobody talks about it but you can like see that everybody's waving pesos around because it like wasn't very easy if you wanted to have a scene with a briefcase full of money it wasn't very like you couldn't make fake dollars because it was against the law and it wasn't very clear what you would have to do to make them fake enough that people would accept it and so they wound up just saying you know what we're just going to use pesos for everything um because that's kind of get a whole bunch of pesos for a lot less money and so you just like have all these old movies where the, everything is pesos and just nobody talks about the fact that the prop is pesos like yeah that it the old movies were like this and then at some point they stopped being like that and i have to think that the idea of campiness would have had to come after people knew to expect anything else, right? Right. By the way, the the original um, writer for this this format document, his pitch for the original episode, he wanted the first episode to be called Nothing at the End of the Lane. Um, this is when he still wanted the time machine to be invisible, and so it was going to be focused on that. And they weren't even going to find out it was a time machine for several episodes. It was just going to, like, I don't know, teleport them somewhere or, like, make them tiny or something. And there's going to be several episodes later that they actually find out it's a time machine. Interesting. Yeah. I think it's better to get to the point. Also, the whole time... I don't think that mystery was totally necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we our, our heroes have been left in the Cave of Skulls. Uh, and they are very terrified of all of these skulls that are around them as they await being presumably murdered at, at dawn. And they're all tied up and they don't know what they're going to do. And, That's certainly uh, the implication. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just as uh, British people in November of 1963 needed to wait a week to find out what's going to happen next, you listeners <laughs> will have to wait a week to find out what we think of 
uh, the Forest of Fear. Bye, so bye everybody. Off. I don't know bye. how to sign off. Bye. The TARDIS Tapes is an amateur production by Christian and Drake, released every other Thursday. Give or take. Any character's similarities to real or imagined persons are purely coincidental and unquestionably fair use. Special thanks to Stephen Kelly, an absolutely smashing guy, for help with the theme music. Follow us on Twitter at TARDIS Tapes, or email us at TARDISTapes at gmail.com. But be nice, please.